Hello and welcome to Minute to Midnight. Today we will be continuing the conversation about AI with Ben Mormon and Stanley Zhang. However, in the second half, we make a notable shift and focus away from the technical understanding of AI and machine learning towards ethical and moral consequences. Particularly, we analyze these concerns through the lens of effective altruism while discussing the people and developments influencing this community. I'll let our conversation do most of the explanation there, but I'd like to give a quick preface to my personal interest in effective altruism. Before becoming aware of this idea and movement in its formal sense, I noticed myself becoming disenchanted with the present as I searched for a means of supporting future life through my actions today. I'd recently read Underland by Robert McFarlane for an architectural studio course asking us to define a threshold between our world and deep time cast into the strata of the world beneath us. This pushed me to think in time scales much greater than I had ever previously considered. Following this, I read Overstory by Richard Powers, which demanded I think like a tree by understanding the slow and deliberate movements of these sentinel species. Following these readings, combined with my own lived experiences thus far in life, I was left with the belief that the most substantial thing I could do in my existence may be to protect the biodiversity of Earth for a future generation. I began to question how we could communicate with the future and bridge a gap perhaps wider than our species' existence to date. I think my moral conundrum will make more sense as the show goes on, but I wanted to present you with a crossroads I find myself at, one that I'm still unsure of. As you will see, I'm very skeptical of the effective altruism community, yet I find myself drawn to many of the principles at its foundation. Further, I see a great deal of overlap and connection between the stories of those fully invested in this community and my own. I suppose I'm thankful for the unexpected and severe crisis this community is now facing, as this coincided my increased attention and has therefore sparked significant reflection on my part. Alright, well, hopefully this personal dilemma has relevance to someone else, but without any more delay, I'll drop you right back where we left off in the discussion of the moral responsibility of AI safety. Yeah, I mean, this honestly, I feel like we're bleeding right into um, kind of the main concerns of effective altruists um, and this idea about like AI safety. Um, and a lot of effective altruists have this very long-termist perspective on uh, civilization. Um, if you view that the average mammal species on Earth has lived about a million years. Um, uh, Homo sapiens are only 300,000 years into that trajectory. So theoretically, there's 700,000 more years uh, of our species, which seems pretty crazy to me. I mean, I don't know if we're on track for that. But, you know, and then also if we're able to augment our existence and um, be like interstellar beings, right? Like the the general idea is that um, we could be outnumbered a thousand to one uh, by future people. So like, what do we what do we owe the future? And um I've been reading a bit um, about this idea, and one of the biggest thought leaders is William McCaskill, um, and he wrote a book literally called uh, "What Do We Owe the Future." Um, and anyways, this this whole uh, this whole movement, which has a lot of controversy and strife, and um, it is quite a rabbit hole. Just in my research for getting into this, I ended up on uh, EA forum, and holy crap, uh, how I would describe my couple hour uh, deep dive in there is trying to place where I lie on the spectrum of utilitarianism to uh, uh, deontology. Uh, and I didn't really even understand what those words meant until digging in and then like, oh my God, it was, it's a rabbit hole. And I don't mean to, you know, take us down with me, but um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a valuable question. I think it's uh, it's something that's definitely occupying people in the effective uh, altruism sphere like it's it's one of the biggest issues um so how like who is responsible for kind of charting this this future um with ai that doesn't lead to our own demise as a species 
I think it's, I guess I think it's everybody. I think companies have a huge role in that, obviously, if they're the people implementing everything and creating this innovation and systems that are applying um, artificial intelligence, they need to be constantly searching how to make sure that what they are doing is safe um, in every definition of that. Um, and that's why I, I mentioned this earlier, but I'm, I love the company OpenAI um, because they are trying to do that and they are, they are trying to create these foundational um, models that will really influence the rest of the world um, of AI, but make sure they are doing that in a way where they're protecting safety and producing it um, with safety in mind um, at first. Uh, but yeah, I, I think everybody has to be involved with that. Um, everybody in the entire process. Okay, so yeah, so you, you specified at the end there, everybody regarding within the realm of artificial intelligence, right? Because I was going to say like, everybody in the whole world I don't know if I agree that everyone in the whole world you know, should be quite that concerned about long-termism, but I think, you know, it definitely can't be ignored, of course, uh, like Ben said. This is, I think, one of the biggest points of conflict within the EA community um, is that there are um, some people that kind of have a um, extreme uh, fanatical stance where they can justify uh, harm in the short term for uh, long-term prosperity. But at the same time, like just ha as you mentioned, I don't think a lot of people can feel that connected to um, our species thousands of years away. I mean, I think to a certain degree, it's hard um, to really convince people. Um, I mean, the argument for climate change for a long time has been like, oh, what kind of world are you leaving your children and your grandchildren? And obviously this this time scale that we're talking about is so much farther than that. Um, it's kind of beyond, I mean, it's beyond recorded history. Like I was thinking when I was um, diving into this other day, I was trying to think like, I don't even fucking know anyone in my family past my grandparent. I guess I know, I know of my great grandparents on my dad's side. Like I never even heard my mom talk about her grandparents. And like beyond that, like, it's it's the 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 story becomes very muddy very quickly and i don't feel connected to them so it's like how how do you convince people to be connected to um a species thousands of thousands of years away um Millions yeah, even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean if we become like an interstellar augmented uh um species before uh you know if robots don't take over and somehow we keep yeah. all our shit together um <laughs> So yeah, like I don't, I do not want to make the argument that uh, long-termism is a valuable uh, worldview for like day-to-day -day interactions. I think you can become very distracted by um, kind of a, a very abstract future and kind of lose any sense of reality. Um, and then this kind of becomes justification for people to do very like horrendous things. And I think mm -hmm. uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, who has been in the news the last couple of weeks, is a pretty extreme example. He was a big proponent of um, effective altruism. He um, actually, William McCaskill was the one that kind of got in his ear and convinced him that uh, to do the most good, he should use his intelligence and uh, like prestigious academic background to go and make a lot of money and give all of that money away, which he did. He got invested in crypto. He started FTX. Um, and I think his wealth peaked around $26 billion as of last spring. 
Um, and now uh, <laughs> he's worth nothing. It's actually viewed as one of the greatest collapses of wealth in um, the history of like capitalism. <laughs> Um, so really, really crazy stuff. And I think he kind of co-opted this movement. And now the question is like, how authentic was he? Was this all kind of just an elaborate um, persona that he created that allowed the crypto community to get behind him? And not just the crypto community, like he had the ear of Congress. He became a huge donor for Democratic campaigns. I think he was the second largest single donor to Biden's campaign for 2020. Um, and he donated a lot in these midterms. And I guess now the really like devastating thing is that a lot of organizations that were actually counting on these like huge donations from um, uh, SBF, which is kind of what the, the EA community calls him and I get the crypto community, um, Sam Bankman Freed. Um, yeah, a lot of companies or uh, nonprofits that were counting on these donations, like they're gone now. And a lot of people lost their money. Like I think uh, something like a million people that had funds um, stored in FTX are now going to have to uh, settle these disputes in court. Like it's a very bad outcome. Um, and I guess what I would be curious to know, and maybe no one will ever know, but it will probably be coming out in the coming uh, months and I mean this could be a year years long of legal battles and I mean SBF definitely has the potential to face some serious jail time um, for fraud and corruption um, so yeah I guess my question is what did he view what he was doing as um, justifiable in that he was trying to uh, he basically took the he leveraged the funds of users on FTX to uh, pay off loans that he owed through Alameda, which was kind of his crypto trust um, hedge fund uh, that had some really risky bets. And come last spring when the crypto market crashed, um, his creditors were coming and asking for that money and they did not have it, you know, because they had all of it tied up in different investments. So that's when they made the decision to take money from um, FTX and another very controversial thing is Alameda was trading on FTX, which, I mean, you can see a pretty clear conflict of interest when you're profiting off a trading platform that you run. Hey, Future Coley here. This felt like an important time to provide a significant update in the criminal case against SBF. On Monday, December 11th, SBF was arrested in his home in the Bahamas where he has been running FTX. Local authorities say he was detained after prosecutors from the Southern District of New York confirmed that he had been charged with an indictment to be unsealed as of Tuesday morning. It has been just about a month since the bank run that triggered the bankruptcy of FTX after it was revealed that the company owed around $8 billion to creditors, with as much as $10 billion being lent to Alameda. This is a very fast-paced, developing story with plenty of resources to fill you in, but much is still unknown at this point. Charges expected against SBF include wire fraud, wire fraud conspiracy, securities fraud, securities fraud conspiracy, and money laundering. Additionally, he is being investigated by the SEC and FTC to determine whether he manipulated the market for two cryptocurrencies leading to their collapse. The speed at which these charges were brought is rather unexpected, as complex white-collar criminal cases typically take much longer to amount to an indictment, questioning whether an investigation was aided by a cooperating witness. Further, he was expected to testify at a hearing in front of the House Financial Services Committee on Tuesday, but will no longer be present due to the arrest. SPF hasn't necessarily been quiet since the collapse of FTX. He recently spoke at a New York Times conference maintaining the position that he was not aware of the extent of liability regarding customer funds lent to Alameda. He has claimed that messy accounting as well as limited attention and oversight are responsible for Alameda taking on much more risk than he realized. 
Further, he has described a sequence of isolated decisions made as appearing reasonable in the moment, despite ultimately amounting to a position which led to the $8 billion deficit. I won't pretend to understand too much about the world of finance, bankruptcy, and regulation. However, I think the story of SBF is much larger than that, and painfully reveals the fallacy of human morals and ethics in the battle for what is right and wrong. In perhaps the most candid and telling interview SBF has given, he sent a series of off-the-cuff responses to a Vox reporter over his Twitter DMs. Yes, <laughs> as if this story couldn't get any more absurd, SBF essentially professed through a series of late-night DMs that he didn't actually believe in crypto regulation, that right and wrong are merely constructs, and his biggest regret was declaring bankruptcy, thereby giving up control of his company and the ability to get out of the $8 billion hole. I'm still unsure if his fundamental interest in EA was earnest or just good PR, like his relationship with politicians and regulators. However, he makes clear his belief that you're only wrong if you lose. He was candid in his criticism of the broader crypto and finance practices he believes amount to Alameda's relationships with FTX, although much smaller. SPF was less averse to the self-described sketchy practices justified by his worldview of a corrupt financial sector. If you are to take SPF for his word in his response to the FTX collapse, perhaps his failure was simply a matter of incompetence and poor management of a $32 billion company by a 30-year-old and his college buddies. If he had a better balance sheet and could get out ahead of his bad investments, he could shape our perception of what is right and wrong while steering an entire emerging industry towards his vision of a just and equitable society. Clearly, that is not the narrative of this particular reality. In his own words, some of this decade's greatest heroes will never be known, and some of his most beloved people are basically shams. Wherever SBF lands, I think our exploration of the social, cultural, and political figure he has become is just beginning to unravel. So yeah, all of this super shady, super disheartening. I mean, it kind of it it uh it puts a very sour note on technologies that i think have a promising future such as blockchain um and it really makes people distrusting of this system and ultimately i think from the long-termist perspective i think uh sbf might have a pretty detrimental effect to this community i i don't know for me i think obviously the failure of ftx i I think is brings a lot of the trust down in the community. So I, I agree with that, but I think I, I don't think he, I don't think he was faking the um, effective altruism thinking at all. I, I think he probably still believes in that, and that it sounds like that is one of his like main life focuses. Um, I think he, I think I guess for me, I don't see it as any different than. Um, I guess I don't know the legal terms, but if if this was the same as just some company that wasn't involved in Web3 stuff or cryptocurrency, um, he just made a pretty bad decision by you stealing somebody else's money to back, to kind of solve his financial situation with Alameda or whatever it's called. Um, but I, I think, and then obviously knowing that, everybody knowing that he... Um, kind of screwed that up having everybody try to pull out their money from ftx all at once is i guess very similar to just banks in the great depression the difference is um that it's not fdic insured obviously so then people can't just guaranteed get their money back up to a certain amount obviously um, so i guess that is that is one of the main problems with it but i, I think he 
I think that his goal was truly his goal, but I think he, he kind of screwed up with that. Yeah. Well, we'll never know, like, you know, if he actually really believed that, but I think the biggest roadblock uh, in front of effective, effective altruism is that, uh, is, is human nature. Um, because like Coley mentioned earlier, we can't even connect with people from like a, a, another country or even another state, you know, we don't have any kind of emotional connection with them. And I, I've read something that you can only have, you can only form something like 15 deep, close emotional uh, connections at a time. Right. And, and you have like these circles of uh, connections, right. Uh, but no, we, we don't really feel emotional connection to things even that far away. So how are we going to feel emotional connection to something uh, so long in the future? And then another aspect of human nature that really holds back this movement, I think, is you know the, the selfish human nature. Every human is going to be fallible and, and uh, selfish to some extent, right? And uh, I think we saw that with SBF uh, when he you know he used other people's funds to to pay off his own debts. That was obviously very selfish, and no matter what justifications he had for you know long termism, oh, this is so that I can continue to do good in the world. Like, I, well, you know, we can't really use that argument to justify any wrongdoings today because that will kind of you know, defeat the whole purpose. Uh, there's no point in creating a good future 10,000 years from now when the future is shit, you know, one year from now. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, I think the idea of effective altruism, like most people would wholeheartedly agree with, like we should use our um, donations and our money as wisely as possible and um like one of the big arguments is that rather than um very wealthy people donating to their alma mater and getting their name on a building like that money could do tremendous amounts of good in other parts of the country so a lot of effective altruism is uh, kind of pushing that money towards the global south where um, a little amount of money can do a lot of good um, and that's where like an organization like GiveWell has been like tremendously successful. Um, I think GiveWell is less in the kind of perspective of long-termism and AI safety and all of this uh, very far out conflict and analyzes organizations to figure out who is using money most effectively and then pushing donations towards those organizations. That's interesting. Yeah, I think uh, regarding AI uh, and its effects on you know, long-termism, I think the biggest thing is uh, the, the development of artificial general intelligence and then very shortly after artificial super intelligence. Because you know, in order to reach artificial general intelligence, it's exponential. As soon as it reaches artificial general intelligence, it's going to zip right past and reach artificial super intelligence. It's, uh, it's on a level that we can't even comprehend, right? Like you think, you think there's a huge difference between the dumbest human alive and the smartest human alive, but there's really not. And uh, computers are going to cross that gap in no time. And I mean, I see that as like a very legitimate concern. And that's why uh, William McCaskill describes himself and some other effective altruists as um, moral weirdos in that uh, he's concerned with issues that maybe we're not talking about today. Like we're talking about uh, institutionalized racism and um, gender pay gaps and like uh, things that we can see very tangibly in our society right now. But that's not to say that, I mean, like you said, this threat is looming and it will happen so fast. And if we're not prepared for it, 
it could very well be the downfall of our species. So I, I see that as a legitimate concern. Um, and additionally, with that the idea of the moral weirdo, um, I think you can look back in time and see, um, you know, many points in history where what was considered moral um, is obviously not. And then I think another example, like right now, we don't really view the lives of animals as having the same value. Like, um, I think a lot of the arguments behind like veganism and vegetarianism is that, uh, you know, livestock animals do have a uh, moral and intellectual like value. Like they, they do have like consciousness, right? Um, and so like, how are we to say that what we're doing right now is moral as viewed by the future. Um, and obviously this gets very complicated and confusing and, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough thing to talk about. Like, I don't know, maybe like right now we might be doing something that, um, future generations view as like a moral atrocity. And to us, it's just lunch. Yeah. And uh, I think tying that back to AI, uh, you mentioned morals change over time. Right. And as we understand, uh, better, uh, about, about science, about the environment, about the world we live in, our morals change and adapt along with it. So as we develop towards, you know, a super intelligent AI, what, what's going to happen is, you know, we're, we're, we're already starting to see that we're relinquishing some of our control and determinist, deterministic uh, aspects to AI. You know, we see AI as like uh, some of this kind of black box that we can't really regulate all that well. You know, we were discussing the, uh, the complications of uh, addressing the biases in machine learning and how that's so difficult because we don't know what's going on and what the you know what, what the machine learning algorithm is uh, doing within the neural network. It's so complicated, and it's only going to get more complicated. So when we reach artificial super intelligence, it's going to be completely out of our control, right? We're not going to be able to modify that. It's going to be modifying itself, improving itself. We can't tell it anymore. Like, hey, our morals have changed. Can you adapt with us, right? And I think that's one thing to consider. Uh, and many people uh, consider the, the achievement of ASI, artificial superintelligence, uh, as the singularity, right? Once we achieve that, the human humanity is either uh, done for, or we're going to achieve a new, like, higher life form, right? It's gonna, it's gonna cure cancer. It's gonna uh, make everyone immortal, right? It's gonna, it, it's gonna elevate us. To however, however it does that, we don't know because it is way beyond our imagining right now. But yeah, it's it's a it's like a cliff, right? You're gonna fall off one side or the other. And that'll be like the end of the human race. It'll be start of something new, good or bad. This definitely this brings me back to that conversation we had this summer, Stanley, when we were sitting on that dock in Lusan, remember? Oh yeah. And we were yeah. like wondering like uh <laughs> what if humans are like the gods of a future um like mechanical non um organic life form um uh -huh. but then they go on to kill their gods you know it's like what well, I, I don't know it's just it's 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 very interesting to kind of think about how we are positioned in this like universal flow of life um yeah. and we also were talking about you know the different hurdles and trying to figure out like how is it that we've never contacted any other like intelligent life? I put that in air yeah. quotes again. Fermi um, paradox. Yeah, yeah, and it's like where, what, uh, what hurdle are we maybe getting caught up on? Uh, the great um, barriers. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is very interesting. You know, at, at the same time, we as humans we have a lot of control 
that many like all other species don't have you know we have uh but that that same self-awareness uh makes us realize you know how how little control we have in the grand aspects of things and uh, so I, I simultaneously we can try to pr pretend to play god right simulate all sorts of things and, and as our technology gets better maybe maybe we can even simulate uh, a model of universe or our, our our world itself right or maybe we're already in that simulation right exactly maybe exactly. that maybe this whole uh this whole thing we're theorizing has already played itself out and now we're just like a pawn mm -hmm. have either have either of you heard of the uh, the boltzmann brain paradox i have not as a the boltzmann brain is an idea uh coined by dr boltzmann boltzmann brain is the idea that um within our universe entropy is constantly decreasing right which means that the universe tends towards chaos everything you know falls apart eventually however given uh infinite amount of uh, enough time those molecules will come together to form some kind of order again right and you know you can speculate like maybe that's how the big bang came to be uh or, or whatnot but regardless the boltzmann brain proposes that uh what's more possible what's more likely that this entire universe and all its rules uh, came to form out of chaos, out of disorder, or that some particles and molecules came together to form a brain just isolated in the vacuum of space that is a split fraction of a second. It is simulating and experiencing our entire lives. Oh, wow. That's wow. interesting. Yeah. yeah, what's more likely that just a small brain formed in the vastness of the universe or that this entire universe formed? But given given enough time, in like infinite time in the universe, everything that is possible is going to be formed from chaos, right? No matter how disordered it is, you shake it around enough, everything is bound to form. Yeah. So actually, this kind of reminds me of... Uh... I don't remember uh, someone like calculated the actual odds that were like in a simulation. And I don't really, I don't, this is a future Coley moment for it, but so this is definitely a huge can of worms, but without too much explanation, there is one theory that the odds we live in a simulation are just under 50%. This theory is proposed by David Kipping as a response to the simulation argument first proposed by Nick Bostrom in 2003. Bostrom's original theory assumed that if future generations were able to simulate reality and desired to simulate the lives of their ancestors, that the quantity of simulated conscious beings would outnumber organic ones a billion to one. This likely influenced Elon Musk in 2016 when he said, there's a billion to one chance we're living in base reality. However, as Bostrom proposed in his trilemma, the odds that we're in a simulation can only approach 100% if humans or other terrestrial beings live long enough to achieve the massive computing power necessary to accomplish this feat and have the interest in simulating Earth's ancestors. Therefore, Kipping uses Bayesian statistics to assign a prior probability of 0.5 to a consolidated trilemma where we either do or do not live in a simulation. With the possibility of near-infinite simulated realities given the technological capability and desire, the posterior probability, defined as the prior probability, adjusted after considering the likelihood of an event given the test data, is just less than half, with the limit approaching 50%. This may not seem so revolutionary, but it outlines a possibility to simulate realities within realities, revealing that the moment we achieve this technological feat almost certainly proves we are in a simulation. The odds, however, will always be in debate, as even Bostrom questions the ability to assign a 50-50 prior probability to the model given how little we know.
that didn't really make sense to me in that like i i understand that uh from like the matrix point of view right like okay what if we created like a robots they took over whatever we're enslaved that um but that doesn't actually seem that likely to me um but what you described seems um i mean that is a form of a simulation if a simulation is a dream Mm -hmm. or it's it's not we're not tangible we don't actually have any existence like right we're just our perception is reality yeah well and it's like that seems crazy but then at the same point like i guess that's artificial super intelligence right like it wouldn't necessarily have physical form I don't know. I mean, obviously, going back to the idea of like, what use is this to like people that are concerned with daily life and like making life better for people that inhabit this planet right now? It's not like that's not useful. But I mean, I think it does. um, I think maybe bringing it back to something that is tangible. um, Effective altruism is kind of built around this idea of doing the most good. Um, But there's been criticism um, similar in similar to the vein of the alignment problem in that when you have kind of such a vague goal of just doing the most good um, in the same um, in the same idea that if you just teach a computer to value human life, like humans are good. um, There's like a potential like conflict there in that that AI might do whatever it can in its power to accomplish that goal right and we mm-hmm. there's like some potential oversight that we like don't quite understand so like when humans try to do that and effective altruists try to do the most good but maybe don't consider like all of the implications of that there is the potential to really steamroll over um you know real people um that are inhabiting this planet right now in pursuit of something very distant and vague that we don't even really know like it will happen like i think it's valuable to speculate and think about and like obviously it has real applications in building like rigid ai safety protocols um but just in the way that like ai could steamroll over um you know communities that it doesn't view as valuable to reach its end goal that we have given it um, I think we are e- equally capable of that same thing. And um, I think you brought up earlier that um, there's like a lot of overlap between, I mean, we talk about neural networks, we're talking about a brain, we're talking about like um, all of our conceptualization yeah. of AI and artificial intelligence, like it's all in relation to organic life. Um, so just as we're trying to create that, I think we can view the the flaws of um our creation in ourself you know it's like very it's like you're just always looking in a mirror and it just very it's disorienting and like i think that's why this topic is endlessly fascinating but also just like it's exhausting <laughs> and it uh it really does just tie you in knots and it makes it very hard to you know keep track of what's important which is you know being alive right now yeah it's uh it's definitely very uh very circular kind of problem where, you know, you're trying to fix this problem and then it leads uh, to this other problem and then it just leads all the way back around to the original problem that you're trying to solve. Right. And, and um, similarly, the, uh, the issue with trying to do the most good, right. Uh, or telling the computer to do the most good uh, is you have to interpret what that phrase means, what each of those words mean. Uh, how do you define those? You have to define them very strictly. Right. But uh, overall we're, still confined by language or even if you forgo language you have to express that intent somehow uh and you know language is 
our preferred method of choice to express that. Um, but then language defines itself. So that's also circular, right? Uh, and without like a, uh, a more semantic context of what these words and phrase means, um, it's, it's very likely that, you know, computer would interpret these things differently, just like you said, with effective altruism, um, it's an interesting tie-in between those that uh, in the long term, if you try to, to do the most good with effective altruism, it can also be interpreted uh, in the wrong way or, or misaligned, right? I um, read something fun about AI safety. There are a lot of examples of like some dystopian reason AI is going to take over the world. But one that I thought was simple and fun is if you like basically give this artificial super intelligence, the goal of making humans um, as happy as they can be. Um, if it realizes that smiling is like a metric of happiness, it will just find some way to like make everybody smile physically. But like, if, if that's what it interprets as everybody being happy, it just will like modify everybody's faces physically, but won't actually like do anything. And that's kind of well, to a certain degree, isn't that uh, like Snapchat filters and Instagram and like how we've <laughs> augmented our presence on online platforms? I mean, it's like the idea, like, is this making us happier? No, not really. But I mean, we all look like we're smiling. So, um, yeah, those overlaps between like science fiction and, you know, science, uh, I feel like the farther we go down these roads, just the more applicable they feel. Um, and then you can start seeing them like actually playing out and just silly little ways and akoli uh previously you said that uh i think you said deontology was uh more fitting with effective altruism long-termism right with well, doing more good i saw a description of effective altruism um it was just like a tweet someone had and it was like um go three quarters of the way between um deontology to um utilitarianism stop there and stay there until you become a god. <laughs> so oh. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, okay. So, so yeah. it's more of a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. What is deontology? Deontology. Um. It's. I mean. So if utilitarianism believes that the the ends can justify the means. Um. So maybe like an example of like the trolley problem, right? Um. Deontology kind of has like a a worldview that is built on like obligation to like your greater society. So there's a lot of like pressure. So essentially like, no, you can't um, do something bad to justify like a later means. So it's kind of the, the, the opposite of, of utilitarianism, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if you, if you uh, define it that way, you know, as something uh, to, to uh for the greater for the greater good right deontology can't um, you say that that's basically what utilitarianism is doing what do you well i i think deontology is saying that like the greater good is not justification um to like personally uh i don't have a good word for this but like commit a sin you know i don't deontology right, feels yeah, yeah. to me to be rather um like mm -hmm. interpreted through like a religious 
um sense and like i i imagine like the 10 commandments like thou shall not kill um yeah. and kind of these like firm rules for existence and like right, regardless of context right? yeah and like why do we value this well we have like a society that's built around it and we have cultural norms and this so i i think someone that would define themselves in deontology would be a um a strict follower of kind of those those norms and rules and the obligations of society so like then anything that's bad is bad yeah no yeah there's, yeah. there's yeah. no excuse for murder and then i mean i mean again another way of seeing this play out is um i mean that's like the argument of like the pro-life movement right is that like murder is murder is murder and it's like life begins at conception so it's like um i think people that kind of adhere to these rules and um have built their worldview around them um they don't they can't see this like greater good idea i don't know i mean obviously uh, everyone's on a spectrum of this like it's not like anyone falls squarely in any of these camps um and that's why i think effective altruism i mean i think there's also a lot of conflict within effective altruism there's also a big um um kind of going back to like an alignment problem is the question or the the guiding principle is do the most good but what does that really mean like there are some people that believe that that um like having the most future humans is like the best possible scenario and we should just want more people and allow them to like experience life um but then there's like a whole nother camp that views like more life is bad and that more people will be suffering and like the overall like i mean if you look at the arc of humanity like the the amount of suffering is far outweighed like prosperity like we're in a pretty fucking prosperous time in like uh in the world and i mean a lot of people have different reasons why they think that's true i mean i think there's a belief that neoliberalism was going to kind of bring general welfare and prosperity to the world um and we kind of built our society around that in the post-war period um but obviously that's not necessarily true either i mean like russia is still going to war in ukraine like china is a uh, authoritarian regime that is uh you know suppressing minority groups like it's not really working out that way but i mean i think generally when you look at like the world now versus um really any other you know century <laughs> of uh mm -hmm. of human history it's like generally there's less bad in the world so but yeah, yeah. so the problem with effective altruism um is that some people would argue that um, we should not try to just make more people and that that, that just causes like more suffering. Um, but then there's other people that are like, well, living life at any moment at any time is like good. <laughs> you know, like uh, most people would rather live than not live at all, I guess. I think that's kind of the logic there. Um, so, yeah, I just it's the it's very very interesting that something that seems so simple right like do the most good it reminds me back to like google's mission statement for the longest time that was on the masthead yeah. was um don't be evil right uh yeah and they and then now like what how do most people characterize google it's like a monopoly that has controlled information distribution and has totally like siloed us into a very bifurcated world you know so it's i mean in ways google is evil but that's goes purely against what their mission statement was or i guess so there's some there's some problem along the way and from the the programming of the model to the end output yeah so you know the, the issue with that all that is interpretation right and perspective everyone has different 
interpretations and perspectives on you know what is the most good uh, or what is evil right it's it's all on uh, which side you're on evil and good uh and, and also actually i i also watched um i think i think we watched the same trolley problem video regarding uh deontology and utilitarianism uh and, and the concise answer is like the, the utilitarian uh person would choose to switch the tracks and kill one person in favor of saving five people and in, in that context uh that would be the utility the maximum the maximal utility would be you know saving four people whereas deontology is just you know you can't pull the lever because you would directly bring harm to that one person so you can't do harm you can't do harmful actions basically um whatever you deem harmful is you know up for interpretation but whatever guidelines you follow and like Coley mentioned no one fall, falls into you know strictly deontology or utilitarianism um but rather on a spectrum so yeah, I think at the core of that um, argument between deontology and utilitarianism, um, it's kind of about control, right? Like the deontologist is kind of just relinquishing control to not have any kind of moral responsibility for the outcome, um, whereas the utilitarian um, is taking the lever and switching the tracks, right? And I think that's why effective altruists are definitely closer to utilitarianism than deontology. And I think um, when you look at the things that they're talking about, they're talking about AI. And I feel like when you, you've, we've described AI multiple times in this conversation as a black box and that we are relinquishing control. Um, and that's really scary. And that's why like, you know, as long as we've been conceptualizing AI, there has been science fiction that has conceptualized our like doom and our demise due to relinquishing this control to machines and ultimately like are those machines going to kill us and you know most of the examples point towards yes um so yeah and then i think an effective altruist i think maybe the reason they are picking their battle against ai is because they are concerned with control and being that they fall close to that utilitarianism um i think they they view this like future of lives as being more valuable and they want to protect them and they're willing to maybe sacrifice current suffering. Um, so yeah, I guess like what this leaves me with is I just wonder like all of these outcomes kind of seem bad. Like I, I'm not sure that the world would be better off if effective altruists had their say. I mean, it is um, also, I, I think it's willing um, it's important to, address that um, effective altruism has a very cult-like following and it's very much in the mold of uh, white liberal men in kind of like Silicon Valley tech industry type jobs. Um, it's kind of like this San Francisco Bay culture um, and it does have this kind of like intellectual superiority very much um, that I think you can see in like the new right with like Peter Thiel and people like Blake Masters um, who view uh, I mean, from the new rights perspective, there's this idea that the world would be better off if a smaller group of, you know, tech oligarchs were making all these decisions because, you know, they kind of view themselves as having a high moral authority due to, you know, their background experience and ability to manipulate technology. Um, and then equally, like effective altruists, maybe I, I think effective altruism has a more nuanced look at it. And there is a humility and pluralism to it um but end of the day like the argument that um instead of being part of a community and you know kind of doing your fair work to 
try to make things better, that you should go and earn as much money as possible and then contribute to things like that gives a lot of power to a couple individuals. I mean, Sam Bankman Freed was like controlling elections, you know, I mean, money provides power. Um, so yeah, I mean, that does not feel like a good future. Um, but equally like the whole black box of mystery and like what potential outcomes are going to come out of AI. Like if we get to artificial super intelligence, like that's equally scary. So to a certain degree, it just feels kind of like a doom loop. And I, I don't really know how you break out of that. Like, do you see any, I mean, I've, I'm not asking for solutions, right? No one has answers, but I mean, do you see a way to at least break out of this kind of harmful binary between giving ultimate control to people or giving um, or releasing control to machines? If you think about it now, everybody's life is so revolved around constantly interacting with technology, especially social media as an example. Um, and those companies have been making decisions on their own for the past 20 years that have completely affected directly or indirectly every part of the world. Um, and I guess in my head, I do not know, I don't have, I don't know how to get out of that. Um, I don't know how to get out of that binary at all. So yeah, I've been questioning my motivations for like, why the hell I want to even make a podcast. And it's kind of been a very, uh, like back and forth conversation I've had with myself. Um, so I'm just curious, like, why did you guys want to do this? Um, I think one, because it's fun to be in a podcast and also two, because um, I think I've realized it's, I, I learn a lot when I have to speak through things that I'm doing or learning or reading about. Um, and it also just makes me check in on the things that I don't know about or have explained in a bad way. Yeah, I definitely, I agree with everything uh, that Ben said, but, but then also along with what we talked about today regarding like the Boltzmann brains and maybe we're living in a simulation and all this negative negativity surrounding like AI and our future and the uncertainty, I think it can lead to a lot of uh, nihilism and a lot of people, you know, temper nihilism as uh, nothing matters. So you should just give up, right? Don't do anything. Nothing matters. But I think the, the flip side of it is nothing matters. So you get to choose what matters and uh, what matters to Coley is making this podcast. What matters to us is being on this podcast and, you know, having this conversation with friends. Stanley, I'm very happy you brought that up. I think you're my favorite nihilist. And I actually was uh, like referencing that kind of same perspective you just iterated um, to Evan on the last episode. I don't really remember if it made it in at the end. Um, but I think you actually kind of changed my perspective on like what nihilism is and what, and what value it has. Obviously there's a lot of reasons I wanted to do this, but one that I always keep coming back to is the idea of, uh, like, how do you combat, uh, this like existential anxiety that can really induce paralysis and just make you feel, um, very small in the world and very powerless, um, you know, nihilism to me, it didn't feel like a, uh, like a real logical connection. Like, oh, this is how I calm myself down. But in a lot of ways, yeah, it is. And I mean, that's kind of the long-termist perspective when you really zoom out. Like, we are very small in the scope of all things. And uh, I don't know. That's like, that would make you think that everything is like meaningless and that my existence has no purpose. But 
at the same time, I think what it really does is it just, it's like a calming nothingness. Um, so that's good. So yeah, things don't always have to be existential. They don't always have to have meaning outside of, uh, what's going on. Like this is just a fun conversation. Um, fun and devastating <laughs> and that's kind of like everything everything's on a spectrum between you know existentialism and nihilism deontology and utilitarianism um and they're all um i mean theories in general are just trying to give us like a language to talk about emotions and feelings and whatnot so so we've talked about problems with ai and the future of ai a lot on uh, the podcast today. And I think I wanted to add a bit of a disclaimer. Um, I'm, I'm really, really excited for the future of AI. And I guess, obviously, that's why I'm trying to enter that field. Um, I think there are a lot of things that have been made um, a lot better because of AI already. And I think the rate of innovation um, is really exciting to me. And I, I can't wait to see what the next five or 10 or 15 years is going to look like. Um, I, I don't think I can really imagine it. I don't think anybody can really predict what's going to happen. Um, growing up since the year 2000, um, I've seen a lot of stuff change. Obviously, I've kind of grown up with the internet and um, learned a lot about computers but um, and had access to that since then. But a lot has changed as I've grown up, and uh, I'm, I'm just very interested to see what happens in the next few years and i'm really excited to be a part of the artificial intelligence world so yeah last time when i was talking with evan he brought up that in a lot of the research and media and things that uh, he has consumed about like climate change um and kind of the broader like existential existence of humanity um you always kind of have a responsibility as someone um, producing this content to kind of leave people with like a happy note or like somewhere where they can actually um, see change happen and not feel powerless. I'm curious if you guys have any particular ideas of how we could promote um, maybe a more equitable, safer, um, prosperous future for us humans in a increasingly digital world. I think, um, I guess one maybe more approachable idea is just having conversations with people. And I think, um, if people interact with the Instagram or send us messages and talk to us, um, not that we are like the source of truth, but, um, I think having conversations about what's going on and also talk about, um, more technical subjects like AI and the internet and how we interact with it is really important. Um, and having people understand, um, how the internet works and how you are a part of that whole system, um, is fundamentally a good thing. I think it's important to understand what you are using. Um, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, more conversation. And I think um, that will come naturally as uh, the new generation grows up alongside all of the technologies that we've developed. And more importantly, uh, the new generations, they grow up adapting to the uh, increasingly fast-paced development of new technologies. And this is something that you know, older generations were not used to. They had decades with their technology before something new or groundbreaking came along. So they had time to adapt. And, and, and now as you know, technology is 
exponentially uh, getting uh, faster and more advanced, we need to adapt in, at a faster rate as well. And so uh, this is something that uh, future generations will have the ability to deal with better than us, better than our parents, uh, better than our you know, predecessors. So it sounds like uh, what you're saying is that an important part of this future is adaptability and having you know people that have grown up in these systems um, being in positions where they can actively uh, promote our ethics and morals as like a, a species as we evolve and develop the this technology and it happens fast right uh, so I guess and this is an open-ended question and I, I'm not really asking for an answer but um, I guess how do we um, really make systems that can adapt and change as rapidly as technology does um, if we're really on this exponential curve of artificial intelligence it seems necessary that we uh, create systems that are going to be able to follow this curve and not be left behind. Um, so yeah, but I I do feel hopeful that people like you guys and you know this next generation and all these people interested in um, technology and this digital world, um, I do think they have you know what it takes to to make this work. I think you just have to fight back you know the corruption, the tech oligarchs people, the bad actors out there that are trying to exploit the system for, you know, monetary gain in the short term and, you know, definitely aren't really long-termists or, you know, aren't really concerned with general humanity. Um, and that's a hard thing to do, but I mean, there definitely is a, um, an energy amongst young people, I think. And I think that the energy just needs to be captured and conversations might be the the best way to do that. Just keep talking about it. Even if, you're boring yourself to tears, you know, I mean, I know you guys uh, know a lot about AI and machine learning, um, but most people, myself included, know very, very little about it. And it is very confusing and stimulating and scary, um, especially when, you know, the biggest examples that we get and um, the exposure is uh, science fiction. And that has its place. I think that is a form of like a conversation that, you know, keeps us aware. Um but clearly has its limitations. I also think the world of AI is scary and confusing and stimulating and just crazy as well. It's um, I'm trying to read more and more, obviously, about it um, and learn more about it, but it is um, extremely confusing. And I think for, um, I guess, technology specifically, um, I think our generation was maybe the first generation that was growing up with with the internet and with technology as we grew up. And I think most of us find it very intuitive and we have understood the patterns, the common patterns of like user design, user interfaces um, as we've grown up. And I think we are quite adept at figuring out new problems and understanding how technology works and that, um, I, I know that kids now growing up are experiencing the same thing, but maybe a bit more complex as the internet has grown. Um, and as we grow up and are in positions of um, influence, we have all that experience to reference. And I think the ability, like Stanley said, to understand and adapt to new technologies as well. And I, I think, obviously, I think 
everybody has the ability for that. But um, we have had, I guess, the, I think, unique opportunity so far to grow up with that technology. Wow. Well, I think talking to you guys um, has provided a lot of insight, but also just a lot of remaining questions. So I definitely want to have you guys back um, sooner rather than later, as in probably the next episode. Um, And I would like to pivot to the user side. Um, and we've talked a lot today about, you know, the, the front end building these models and how these models can play out on like a societal level. Um, and that's very interesting, but as we mentioned, it's very large and incomprehensible. So next time I would like to pivot to, you know, the way that we're all interacting with the internet, which is just daily online streaming, browsing, social media, and how our data is being captured. Um, and you know, what we can do to kind of change these power dynamics, man, it's really hard to cut this off and say goodbye. Um, and I know we have so many more things to discuss, but, uh, there will be time. So I think for now, I'm just going to say thank you. Um, thanks for being my best friends and supporting me through this and, um, being on the pod. And I know you guys will be back and this project is not over. Um, and I hope that, uh, I hope people reach out to you guys and, you know, just talk about this stuff. You know, it's, it's fun, um, fun and devastating all at the same time. Yeah. Thank you. It was very fun. I'm excited to talk more. For sure. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. We look forward to in your future productions. Be sure to check out Coley's previous pods and come back for more minutes and midnight. Uh, and don't skip Stanley's outro where he describes his favorite pie. Uh, I really enjoy a good crust as well on a pie because it can't be too crumbly. Uh, it has to hold its form, but it can't be too moist either. So there's a perfect medium where you bite into it and it's almost like biting into sand, like compacted sand, but uh, better than how that sounds. Crust is very underrated, especially on pizza as well, you know, uh, in bread sandwiches. A lot of people cut off the crusts on sandwiches, and I think that is uh, sacrilegious to sandwiches. Uh, and as far as hot dogs go, I don't know what constitutes crust on a hot dog, but uh, I think the whole outer, outer shell is the crust of a hot dog. And then we can go into debate about whether hot dogs are sandwiches or not. Uh, but I think there's three broad categorizations. There's three things that all foods can be categorized.